Hello, good afternoon. So, uh, now come to the uh, final talk I've got to uh, give you here. Uh, and as you see here, this is about challenges to liberty. Uh, and what I'm going to talk about in this talk is the ideological opponents and challenges that liberalism has faced uh, over the last 200 years. Uh, it's historic original opponents, the people who rose as new opponents, uh, last, and then more recently the challenges that it now faces. Now, uh, it's worth saying uh, that uh, what I'm dealing with here are explicitly anti-liberal movements. Uh, that's an important point to make because not all of the political movements that uh, classical liberals may have disagreements with or debates with are themselves inherently or explicitly anti-liberal. Uh, there is, of course, the phenomenon of what you might call uh, left-wing or collectivist liberalism uh, of the kind that you find uh, in many countries today. Uh, and these people, Rawlsian liberals, if you would, in the kind of context of modern political philosophy, uh, certainly disagree with classical liberals about the importance of an almost entirely free market economy. Uh, they favor quite a lot of government intervention in the economy. They favor a redistributive welfare state, but they're still liberals uh, because they still believe in the importance of things like individual liberty, uh, personal autonomy and the like. They still think that individual uh, autonomy and self-realization is the primary goal of living in a political society. And to the extent that they do favor a growth of state action, they do so because they see the state as an enabler. In other words, the idea is that what government can do is enable people and give them the capacity to pursue their own ends. So they, they are, people of that sort are still liberals, uh, just not uh, free market liberals. What I'm going to be talking about here are people who explicitly reject the core values of liberalism to a greater or lesser extent. People who in some way depart radically from the picture that I've just seen. And you'll notice the uh, subtitle there, Attacks from uh, Block Capital's All Quarters, uh, because what you will find is that the attacks on liberalism, classical liberal principles, do not come from one point in the political spectrum only. Uh, they come from all over. Uh, and uh, it's really a kind of historical illusion to think that they just come from uh, the socialist left. That's because we tend to think that because for about 40 or 50 years after World War II, that was indeed where the main challenges came from. But in fact, historically, as we'll see, uh, they come from several other quarters. Now, um, the... Initial opponents of liberalism are, if you like, the people who are uh, responding to the challenge of liberalism by defending the established order. This makes them different, as we'll see, from later opponents of liberalism who are, in fact, reacting against a political order in which the liberals have already gained a lot of victories, uh, brought about quite a lot of transformation. So the historic opponents of liberalism are broadly of two kinds. Uh, this chap here is Joseph de Maistre, uh, the great arch-reactionary. Uh, he is the exponent of the first great historical enemy of liberalism, which is often called throne and altar conservatism. These are people who support and uphold the ancien regime of Baroque Europe. Uh, they support absolute monarchy, uh, an authoritative church, 
controls on freedom of expression through things like the Index Purgatorio if you're a Catholic or state censorship if you're in one of the Protestant parts of Europe. Uh, they support established institutions such as slavery uh, and controls on the movement of, say, peasant farmers, serfs, and the rest. And they do so on the basis of a profoundly authoritarian vision uh, of the world and of human society. For these people, liberty is a profoundly dangerous, not to say impious, idea. Uh, they think there is something actually blasphemous about the idea of people asserting their personal judgment. Uh, that, after all, is what Satan did. Uh, Satan is the guy who asserted his personal judgment against God uh, and didn't accept what God said. If you ever read Paradise Lost and you read book, I think, six, uh, you have this description of how the war in heaven began uh, and you have all this account of where Satan is talking to other angels saying, well, this chap, he says he's God, he's created us all, how do we know this is true? Um, and he persuades a whole lot of them, a third of them, in fact, to join him in rebellion. Uh, and uh, so what that means is that the assertion of individual judgment, individual choice, is seen as being a rebellion, not just against the king, not just against the church, but against an entire divinely inspired and ordained order. Now, obviously, conservatives of this kind are, uh, you know, almost extinct now. Uh, there are a few hardy perennial survivors, you know, who hang out in strange parts of the internet. Uh, and there is actually... <laughs> Uh, there is actually an attempt to revive this kind of ideology uh, under the heading of what's called neo-reactionary uh, neo thinking or the dark enlightenment, um, which is a bunch of seriously pretentious people. Um, one of the was for a few, I was looking into these people a few years ago, uh, and I, well, last year actually, and I studied, I had to read, a blog called Unqualified Reservations, uh, which is written by a guy who calls himself Mencius Moldbug. Um, and this is the kind of origin he's trying to reconstitute this sort of idea. Uh, and I, basically, I think I have lost several days of my life that I will never get back. Uh, and uh, let me put it this way, uh, this chap, Mencius Moldbug, he's one of these people who believes in never saying clearly, succinctly and straightforwardly in 50 words what you can say long-windedly and pretentiously in 5,000. Uh, but what you see there is a kind of rather affected attempt to revive this ideology. So it, at the moment it's a kind of intellectual fringe pastime. But back in the early 19th century, these are the main opponents of liberalism. These are the people, uh, the reactionaries, the ultras in France, uh, people like uh, classic German conservatives and Spanish conservatives who lock up the classical liberals, who send them to prison, uh, who impose all kinds of civil penalties on them, who resist their campaigns for uh, freedom of, the, of religious belief and observance, the abolition of censorship, the abolition of slavery and things of that sort. Now, the other historic opponent, this is more controversial. Uh, this, by the way, this painting here, is the Oath of the Horatii uh, by the French uh, paper, painter Jacques-Louis David. Uh, this is a classic artistic representation of the ideology of classical republicanism, or civic humanism, as it's sometimes called. This is an ideology that goes back, ultimately, to Machiavelli uh, and to other late medieval Renaissance thinkers of that era. And the idea of uh, classical republicanism uh, is that the ideal political order uh, is not so much a monarchy, uh, but rather a republic of independent, 
uh, warrior farmers. Uh, now, you'll notice several features about the iconography here. You'll notice the sort of dramatic poses. You'll notice the emphasis upon the martial, the emphasis upon the swords. These are all obviously guys who are about to go off and fight. Uh, that's part of the ideology of classical republicanism, which is an emphasis upon the values of war, the heroic, uh, the martial, as opposed to the uh, soft, bourgeois, effeminate values of commerce and trade. You'll notice also that the men David hasn't put them right in the center. They're slightly to one side, but you'll notice that the men are active, dynamic, they dominate the picture, whereas the women who are on the other side are small, like not doing much, they're all looking at each other, they're not active, they are passive. And that's also another key part of the ideology of classical republicanism. Now, classical republicans, in some ways, are closer to classical liberals than the first group I mentioned, uh, because they do believe in uh, a law-governed state. So what makes them different from classical liberals? Well, the reason is because class the primary reason is that classical Republicans believe that if you live in a political order, the collective good, the general good, should always and everywhere take precedence over personal good. Uh, they believe in a society where if push comes to shove, you must use force to subordinate the uh, individual who composed that, who might pursue their own ends, to the collective good of the society as a whole. Now, of course, that raises the obvious question, well, hold on here, who is it that decides what the collective good is? Uh, and there are two answers to that. One answer is that you Basically, it's what everybody really wants if only we were thinking clearly. Uh, this is the argument of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, who's who is the great exponent, by the way, of classical republicanism. Uh, it is the idea that basically the general will, uh, which is what, what the collective society really wants, is what you would really, really want if you were thinking clearly and you were thinking in the long term. The kind of analogy is um, maybe you want to have a cigarette. No, you don't really. You know you shouldn't want to have that cigarette. Your real thinking is that you shouldn't. Therefore, Rousseau says, you can be forced to be free. Because if you are compelled to do something that secretly you know you really ought to want to do, that's not coercion. You're being forced to be free. Uh, and that's a very profound part of the classical Republican uh, ideology. Uh, and it's a very powerful set of beliefs and ideas. Who are the major exponents of it? Well, the reason why I put up David, apart from the fact that he's a great painter and this is a very dramatic representation of that ideology, is that David was a, a Jacobin. Uh, he was the great celebrant in the visual arts of the Reign of Terror. And the Jacobins in France, Robespierre, Danton, Marat, uh, Saint-Just, all the other great leaders of the French Revolution, the Terror, they were motivated primarily by this ideology of classical republicanism. Uh, their ideal state, by the way, was Sparta. Uh, and if you think about what Tom said the other day about the contrast between Athens and Sparta, that is very revealing. Uh, they would rather have a society with no arts, no science, no culture, but lots of Republican virtue. Now, before I pass on, uh, it's worth saying that there's a big argument about the degree to which the American Revolution and the founding generation here in the United States are motivated by uh, these ideas. And some historians, notably Gordon Wood, think that the uh, first generation of the United States is basically permeated with classical Republican ideals. 
and they think that that's what they're about. In particular, people like Alexander Hamilton are pointed to as being exponents of this ideology. Uh, now, my personal view is that that's wrong. Uh, as I say, this is a very controversial topic, a big historiographical ding-dong about it. Uh, I think that actually, if you look at people like, say, Alexander Hamilton, you'll find that, yes, he wants to create a republic, but he doesn't want to create the kind of martial uh, collectivist republic that civic, classical republicans want. What Alexander Hamilton wants to create is a commercial republic, and he's very much an exponent of the idea I alluded to earlier, that you need a strong government, but the purpose of that government is in order to enable individuals to realize their own goals. Uh, so uh, there's a certain element in the founding generation, people like Hamilton or James Wilson, uh, who I think have strong sort of leanings towards this ideology, but I personally would rebut the charge that that's where they are. On the other hand, where you're talking about Jacobins or their fellow followers in many other parts of Europe in the first half of the 19th century, uh, these are definite, this is definitely their ideology. Uh, many of the revolutionaries you get, say, in Paris in 1848 or elsewhere in Europe in that year, uh, this is very much the ideology they come from. Uh, and so liberals are their target as much as the absolute monarchs. Worth saying, of course, that these two historic opponents, uh, thrown and altar conservatives and classical republicans, dislike each other uh, almost as much as they dislike the liberals. Uh, but uh, they both have a common enemy, which is uh, commercial, bourgeois, mercantile, individualist liberalism. Uh, they both think that it is a uh, corrupt, this-worldly, selfish, individualistic philosophy that debases the higher good and subordinates it to short-term selfish goals. Uh, that's their sort of reading of it. So these are both explicitly anti-liberal ideologies. However, by the mid-19th century, they have been pretty much defeated. Uh, there are still a few absolute monarchies surviving in Europe at that time, notably in Russia, of course, although the Russian monarchy is slightly different from monarchies in the rest of Europe for various historical reasons. Uh, you still have established churches in various parts of Europe, but they're gradually losing all their, uh, you know, their power and their control of society until they become like the Church of England, a bit of a joke, quite frankly. Uh, one of my favorite issues of uh, Yes Prime Minister was when James Hacker, the hapless politician, has to appoint a bishop and he says to Sir Humphrey, well, how does this work, Humphrey? And he says, well, it's simple, Prime Minister. You're given a list with two names on it, one of whom is totally unsuitable. Uh, and says, so um, this is absolutely true, by the way. Uh, and uh, the, and says, so who is the one that's suitable? Well, he's usually a modernist. What does that mean? Well, it means he doesn't believe in God. Really? I thought that was part of the job description. Uh, I'm afraid these days, Prime Minister, you'll find that's what's known as an optional extra, <laughs> which, is, which is actually horrendously true. Uh, and um, the, that, that is... Um, so the point is, though, return to my main argument, that by the 1860s, say... Uh, these historic opponents had been pretty much vanquished. Uh, there were still people who believed these ideas, but they no longer had uh, real, a real chance of political victory. Uh, and the kind of institutions that they have held, or the alternatives in the case of the classical republicans, were no longer a serious challenge. However, at this point, later opponents. What happens from the late 19th century onwards is the rise of a series of other anti-liberal movements. Here is the first one, two charming gentlemen here. I don't need to tell you who these people are. Uh, you, I'm sure you recognize both of them. Uh, they, this, of course, is fascism. 
One of the things it's important to realize is that fascism has important antecedents in the pre-World War I era. Uh, antecedents, and this is a point I'll return to, that you find primarily in the artistic, literary, and cultural movements of the time. Uh, so, for example, one of the important elements of uh, Italian fascism uh, is an art movement called Futurism, associated with a guy called Marinetti, but a number of other people as well. This is a form of avant-garde art, art which develops just before and just after World War I. Uh, it emphasizes speed, power, dynamism, force, uh, and it feeds in the aesthetics and the underlying philosophy of this feeds into fascism. Another important figure is a strange but rather amazing person called Gabriele D'Annunzio, uh, who is a great poet, a uh, great writer in Italian, but also a progenitor of fascism, uh, and who he basically has a go at creating his own little fascist state in Fiume uh, before the march on Rome and Mussolini's coming to power. But the same is true elsewhere. One of the most striking features of the cultural history of the very late 19th century, the fin de siècle, uh, the 1890s and 1900s, is the rise of a literary tradition which uh, is critical of bourgeois society and which asserts, amongst other things, the idea that war is good and that really the world has had too much peace and what it needs is the bracing tonic of a great moral adventure, as somebody once said. Uh, in other words, you need war because it's character building and heroic. An example of this uh, is an Irish fellow called Patrick Pierce, who goes on to lead the Ulster, the Easter, I should say, uprising in 1916. And in 1915, uh, Pierce writes an essay called The Great War. Uh, and in this war, he says, how wonderful it is what is going on in Europe at the moment. Isn't it brilliant that we're having this huge war? We were almost ruined and destroyed. We were living in a world where nobody thought about anything except com material comfort and uh, material well-being. Now we have a chance for real heroism and sacrifice. Uh, and you might think, what a total nut job. Uh, and indeed, that is my reaction to this. But uh, that kind of idea was quite widespread, uh, and not just in Ireland. In England, for example, there was a very influential figure, uh, an intellectual called T.E. Hume, well-known poet, writer, critic. Uh, he, again, was articulating exactly the same idea before 1914 and then during the war. Uh, he welcomed the war because he thought it was a great opportunity uh, to create a truly heroic martial civilization and overthrow peaceful bourgeois liberalism. Uh, he was a man of his principles. He joined the army and he was killed on the Western Front uh, in 1916. So, uh, you know, he actually uh, walked the walk, so to speak. Uh, similarly, in Germany at the time, uh, there was a man called Werner Sombart, a very important economic historian, a man who, as Ludwig von Mises said, uh, showed a complete consistency throughout his life in his hatred of liberty. Uh, he began life an ardent Marxist, he ended life an ardent Nazi. Uh, but there was one consistent thread throughout his entire career. Uh, and in the, uh, in, nine, in the start of World War I, he wrote a book called Handler und Helden, uh, Merchants and Heroes, in which he argued that the war then going on between uh, the Entente powers and the Central powers was not a conventional great power war. It was rather, he said, a Glaubenskrieg, a war of values. And it was a war between the shopkeeper values of the British, the treacherous, 
uh, unreliable, materialistic, money-grubbing, sordid British and the stern warrior Marshal Teutons. Uh, shame about the Austrians. And he basically argued that that's what the issue was and that therefore it wasn't simply a matter of territory or the usual other causes of dispute between sovereign states. It was rather a war between two worldviews, two kinds of consciousness, basically. And this was, of course, you can see how all these kind of thinking and this kind of artistic and cultural movement feeds into fascism in the interwar years. And one of the things you should realize, it's very easy to forget this now, is just how popular and just how su widely supported fascism was. Because of World War II and what the Germans got up to during that war, the Holocaust and all the other atrocities, uh, we now sort of draw a veil over the fact that all sorts of highly respectable people thought that fascism was really cool and the way to go. Notably, the Roosevelt administration. Um, one of the most striking features of the first New Deal, the period between 1932 and 1937, is the degree to which it's based upon imitating Italian models. Uh, Mussolini's Italy, the corporate state that Mussolini had set up in Italy, was very much the model for things like the National Recovery Agency uh, with the Blue Eagle and all that stuff and all of the other um, uh, programs launched in that first five years of the New Deal. And people didn't hide this because there were lots and lots of people in the US and elsewhere in Britain who thought that, you know, Mussolini was a pretty cool chap. He'd made the trains run on time, you know, famous line. Uh, he'd created, they thought he'd turned the Italians into an effective state, which everyone thought was a minor miracle. Um, uh, and although Hitler was always regarded as being a bit less, uh, you know, uh, respectable, even Hitler had lots of admirers. So fascism had many, many supporters. Uh, as a model or alternative to liberal democratic capitalism in the interwar years. And it was particularly popular amongst a lot of uh, cultural figures, writers, artists and like. People like, for example, Wyndham Lewis, D.H. Lawrence, uh, Ezra Pound. These were all open fans of fascism. Uh, and they admired what they saw as the fascist challenge to bourgeois liberalism. Then, of course, there's this alternative, global communism. Um, this was something which, again, appeared at the very end of the 19th century, just before World War I. It's important to notice, by the way, that there's a crucial distinction between this anti-liberal ideology and classical Marxism. Um, when people these days say, oh, I'm a Marxist, uh, well, two things to say about that. One of them is I I'm, think the great majority of these people have never actually read a word of Marx. Um, that's my experience anyway. Um, uh, the other thing about them is that they're actually Marxist-Leninists. Uh, if you are an orthodox Marxist, then what you think is that history is naturally and inevitably going to lead to the replacement of capitalism by socialism. So if that is the case, why do you need politics? It's going to happen anyway, isn't it? You know, so why do you do it? And indeed, that is the view of classical Marxists, people like Karl Kautsky. Their view is, what you want is for capitalism to reach its highest possible stage of development. So you don't want a welfare state. You don't want uh, government intervention. You want complete, full-on, laissez-faire capitalism. Because the more you allow capitalism to develop its logic, the sooner you will arrive at the point where the internal contradictions of the system manifest themselves, and you'll have socialism. So you want capitalism to actually be completely with the break off uh, and push to its ultimate limit, because only then are you going to get to socialism. Now, what Lenin did, of course, was to say, 
no, this isn't going to work. People don't have the right class consciousness. Uh, and so he came to the view uh, that you could actually kind of uh, get to socialism ahead of schedule, so to speak. And the way for doing this was through a vanguard party. Now, I don't need to go explicitly into the ideology. I'm sure you're all familiar with the ideology of Soviet and other forms of communism. Uh, but again, it's worth pointing out just how widely uh, shared this idea was in the 1930s. Lots and lots of sympathizers, uh, both here in the United States and elsewhere in Europe. And also, again, the explicit anti-liberalism, the degree to which uh, Soviet communism explicitly rejected uh, basic ideas like individual autonomy uh, and the idea of the personal life and the lived personal life as being a self-governed project. Uh, they basically uh, took on board the older classical republican idea that essentially you should be part of a great collective project and your duty as a citizen of the socialist world of the future was to subordinate your personal wishes, goals, aspirations and desires to the collective purpose of society as a whole, as interpreted, and this is the Marxist-Leninist fusion, by the party, which has the job of driving society, guiding it and articulating society's goals as a whole. Uh, but again, it's radically anti-individualist. Uh, and in this way of thinking, uh, individual liberty uh, is just an affront to the collective purpose. It's the assertion of individual selfishness and egoism uh, in the face of a real historical destiny. Uh, and of course, the result of both of these alternatives to liberalism uh, is, as we know, disaster. Worth pointing out, by the way, though, uh, that unlike with uh, fascism, uh, communism still has people who support it. Now, my colleague Christian Nemitz back at the IEA, uh, he's our in-house troll, amongst other things, um, it's, it's worth following Christian's Twitter feed. He uh, engages in constant Twitter wars with various annoying left-wing intellectuals. Uh, I think one of his life's missions is to poke left-wing intellectuals in the eye and make them angry at him. Uh, anyway, uh, Christian is also writing a book about uh, the persistence of the idea of true socialism. And this is something you find constantly with communist regimes from the Russian Revolution onwards. What you find is people from uh, liberal societies who visit a communist regime and they come back saying what a brilliant place it is and how this is the future. This is true socialism. Uh, and uh, this is, then a few years later, it turns out the whole thing is a disaster. Millions of people have starved to death or been murdered or probably both, some combination of both. And at that point, what you say is, ah, it's not true socialism. Uh, now, that's why. How do we know it's not true socialism? Well, because true socialism wouldn't lead to these bad results. Uh, and the trouble is, though, that, um, you know, if you, despite the fact that trying the same thing over and over again always leads to the same result, all that shows is that these were not true socialism. They were just, no, they were delusions and snares, and we haven't tried true socialism yet. Now, you would think they would have read Albert Einstein's famous thing about the definition of insanity being, you know, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result, but clearly not. Uh, Christian has come to the conclusion that the only way to explain this is through quantum mechanics and specifically through Schrodinger's cat. Uh, now, I don't know if you know about that. This is the famous uh, sort of thought experiment where you have a cat in a sealed room uh, and there's a bottle of prussic acid with a hammer over it and there's a radiation source and a Geiger counter. And if the radiation source emits uh, a gamma ray, then uh, the hammer will fall, the cat will die from the cyanide. Uh, but the trouble is, until you open the door, you do not know uh, where you are and the kind of 
conventional understanding is that what this means is that until you open the door, the cat is both alive and dead at the same time. And what happens when you open the door, observe it, is that one of those two realities ceases to exist and the other one becomes real. But there's also what is known as the many worlds theory of quantum mechanics. And that is that there's a world in which the cat is alive, there's a world in which the cat is dead, and what you do when you open the door is you discover which world you're in. And so this is apparently, Christian thinks, this is what is going on with socialism and with communism. Uh, people think initially, oh, we're in the world where this is true socialism. And then they realize later on, no, 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 uh, we're not. We're in the alternative time track where uh, this is not true socialism. And what that means is that people can then say, oh, I may have said uh, that, you know, two or three years ago that this was true socialism and a great thing, but really I didn't say that. That was an other me, a different me in a parallel time world. Uh, Noam Chomsky apparently believes this uh, because um, a few years ago uh, he had a thing about what a great thing Venezuela was and how Chavez was creating the world of the future. Uh, and a few months ago he had an interview in which he said that, uh, oh, basically this is just state capitalism and it's a disaster. Uh, I always thought this. Uh, I, I don't know how he has the effrontery given that he's there on record and on YouTube as having said the exact opposite, but like I say, apparently he thinks that that's a parallel him in a different space-time continuum. Uh, and that's how he can explain this. But what is quite striking, uh, being more serious, is the degree to which, unlike fascism, this particular alternative persists and still has an amazing number of people uh, who support it, who, who think that, well, it just hasn't been tried properly yet. We should give it another shot. Uh, there are limits, it would appear. I think there are almost nobody who thinks that North Korea is the way to go. Uh, but it is amazing the number of people who think that Cuba is a great place to go. Not that I noticed them queuing up to get Cuban passports and go and live in Havana. Now, it's worth saying, though, that because of both World War II and the Cold War, once again, these two other opponents were defeated. Part of that, and particularly the defeat of communism, involves systematic intellectual and political alliances between classical liberals, uh, moderate conservatives, and what you might call social democrats. Uh, that was a large part of the great intellectual and political project of the CIA during the 1950s to produce a kind of unified anti-communist, uh, anti-totalitarian front between different kinds of liberalism, if you will, uh, moderate conservatives, classical liberals and social democrats, uh, who did share the common idea that individual self-realization and liberty is the way to go, even if they might disagree about what the best way of doing it was, and who had a common opposition to the explicitly anti-liberal and totalitarian ideology of communism. Uh, and so this was largely effective, I think. And so, although, as I say, there are still some people, uh, you know, communists, mostly in American universities, um, and universities elsewhere, uh, it's no longer, as I say, the kind of major threat that it was in the central decades of the 20th century or after. But does that mean that now we've entered into the, uh, the sunlit uplands? Well, clearly not. Because we now have other ideologies. Well, uh, Russia is no longer a communist state. It's something else. Russia is a kind of neo-Tsarist state, I would say. I don't think it's a communist state in any meaningful sense of the term. China is an interesting case. Um, China has morphed or developed into a rather strange kind of formation which combines a largely market economy with a com ruling communist party. Uh, what it doesn't have any longer is the desire to spread the ideology worldwide. Uh, the Chinese pursue conventional great power politics. This is a different ideology. Um, as it says here, pure good, all in one package. 
this is the ideology which has been actually the most pervasive uh, and probably effective uh, opponent of classical liberalism until very recently. Uh, progressivism, as it's called in the United States, uh, is an extremely powerful ideology. Not that it has much support amongst the wider public. Uh, this, the essential core element of this is the idea of technocratic managerialism. Uh, it's the idea, which comes as much from management science as it does from any political philosophy, that basically there are educated, technically qualified expert elites, and that these people know better than the rest of us what we should be doing and how we should run our lives. And therefore, uh, the way to make everybody really happy, uh, really fulfilled, is to uh, allow these people to control and decide our lives for us. Now, if you think about famous dystopias, uh, 1984, or Evgeny Zamyatin's We, which you, if you haven't read, uh, I recommend, or Ayn Rand's Anthem, are all dystopias where a kind of communist uh, regime is in power. Uh, but actually, a much more in a way, sinister dystopia, I think, is Brave New World. And in Brave New World, I think one of the definitive uh, passages is where the hero, the savage, uh, meets the world controller, Mustafa Mond. Uh, and basically, Mustafa Mond says, what is it you want? You know, uh, everyone is happy. Everyone is contented. Everyone is, uh, you know, uh, just blissfully ignorant, happy, and satisfied. Uh, and the savage's response is, well, I choose, no, he says, you're, he says uh, you, what you are asking for is the right to be unhappy, the right to make mistakes, the right to be lousy. And the, the savage thinks for a bit and says, I choose them all. And what the savage is asserting uh, is the right to individual inquiry, uh, exploration, and discovery. Uh, you know, in the famous old saying, uh, better Socrates unhappy than a pig satisfied. But the idea of uh, progressivism is the idea that actually most people don't really know what's best for them. They don't know how to organize their lives so as to be happy, and that what you need is to have an enlightened elite whose qualifications for ruling are their possession of technical expertise. Uh, and these people will, through enlightened bureaucratic rule, a paternalistic government, if you will, govern society in such a way as to maximize the uh, individual happiness of the sheeple, as they're known. Now, uh, this ideology actually first appears in Germany, uh, in Imperial Germany, uh, in the later part of the 19th century, uh, but it really finds fullest expression here in the United States. Uh, and it's, it's partly spread from the United States to many other parts of the world. And I think this is the dominant ideology of uh, most parts of the modern developed world. This is the ideology that most modern bureaucrats uh, and a lot of modern politicians believe in. Now, it has apparent similarities with classical social democracy or uh, social liberalism, but actually there's a crucial difference. And then once again, it's the denial of individual autonomy and agency. This is a radically paternalist view of the world uh, in which the explicit assumption is that you cannot afford to allow people to decide things for themselves. Because if you do that, they will get it wrong. Uh, or maybe they will uh, get things right at an individual level, but there will be seriously adverse consequences at the societal level. And the only way out of this is to have a kind of elite uh, priesthood 
uh, a clerisy uh, who will control things and decide them for you. So while fascism and communism have both been defeated, this ideology is still very much with us. Although, uh, I think it's fair to say that it's actually starting to decline, and much to the despair and dismay of its exponents. And the reason why, I'm afraid, is not because of anything that classical liberals have done, I'm afraid, it's because of pushback from ordinary people. Uh, who just get ultimately utterly sick and fed up uh, with being patronised and told what to do by their alleged uh, moral and social superiors. Uh, and so what you're finding is a kind of significant pushback. However, uh, this pushback is starting to take forms which are significantly dangerous. And what we're also seeing now, I think, is the revival of yet new opponents of liberalism. Uh, and I now want to talk about where we are now. Uh, so what is happening is that uh, a number of things are happening. We're seeing the appearance of new opponents, uh, which, if you like, are arising apparently like mushrooms out of the ground after a rainfall uh, to challenge uh, liberalism quite explicitly. Now, you might say that there are, these are actually a kind of resurgence or revival of old opponents, that this is actually a resurgence or revival of classical militant socialism stroke communism, or even of fascism. Uh, but actually, I think that's, that's misleading and mistaken. Just as there were elements of absolute right monarchy and classical republicanism in later fascism and communism, so there are indeed elements of those earlier mid-20th century ideologies in these new anti-liberal political movements. Uh, but there's enough in them that is genuinely novel that it makes sense to think of them more as new challenges. And what I think is going on at the moment is that there is a shift taking place in the focus of politics. Now, I have a whole separate talk about this, about my thesis that uh, most developed countries at the moment are undergoing a realignment of politics. Uh, this is, some, a, a realignment is where the big issues that politics is about and which tend to divide the population of democratic political orders into what you might call broad tribes, red and blue, uh, left and right, whatever you want to call them, these are changing. Now, for the last 50, 60 years, the really big issues, maybe even longer than that, the really big issues have been mainly about economics. The big dividing line has been free markets on the one side versus greater or lesser degree of government intervention on the other. That is still there as an issue, undoubtedly, as we shall see. But there's a new issue arising, and this is an issue of the politics of identity. I think that increasingly in most Western societies, there's an emerging division between, you might almost say, two temperaments basically, between on the one side, people who, uh, in, as the British um, political scientist David Goodhart put it, are very much attached to somewhere, as he puts it. People who are very much attached to the traditional, the familiar, the local, the particular, and who find the kind of changes that technology and globalization are bringing about in the world today as threatening. They perceive a lot of these changes, including ones that benefit them economically, as damaging and a cause of loss rather than as being something to celebrate. And what these people are is very, very hostile uh, to uh, globalization, to the migration of people. They're very hostile to 
a global free market order in which you get free movement of capital, uh, free movement of investment and things of that sort, uh, free trade in goods and services, uh, they want to assert rather the primacy of the particular. And what this means again is an explicit anti-individualism and the assertion instead of a collective identity which is meant to trump that particular uh, personal, you know, individual identity. But as I say, economics still matters uh, because this desire, this politics of identity takes an economic uh, expression, or if you want to put it another way, it has an economic aspect to it. So what is happening at the moment? Well, uh, there's one of the things we have happening. Um, don't need to introduce these two gentlemen to any of you. Uh, I think the caption says it all, really. One of the things we have seen is a sudden apparent revival uh, of old-fashioned socialism. Uh, here in the uh, US with Bernie Sanders, uh, over in the UK with Jeremy Corbyn, also uh, in France, say, with Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who um, was one of the candidates for the recent French presidential election, uh, elsewhere in Europe as well, with people like the Podemos party in Spain, uh, the Syriza party, which is currently the governing party in Greece, and the like. And there is undoubtedly a strong reassertion of uh, the old socialist religion. But, to return to my earlier point, uh, this is interestingly and crucially different in certain significant ways uh, from, at least at the moment, uh, from earlier versions. And in particular, uh, politicians of this kind and political movements of this kind are deeply ambivalent about nationalism and globalization. Uh, they are not at all clear where they stand about it. Now, uh, Sanders and Corbyn are both very interesting in this case. Uh, they are both appealing to two quite different kinds of, of electoral constituencies. On the one hand, they're trying to appeal to old-fashioned, uh, older, typically white, working-class voters who support socialist economics out of what they perceive to be their class interest. But they're also appealing to a new and different constituency of younger, typically highly educated, uh, university graduate, metropolitan voters who live in major metropolitan cities. Now, the first group of voters are uh, strongly supportive of socialist economics, but culturally very traditionalist and conservative. Whereas the second group of voters certainly agree with the first lot about economics, but they're actually culturally very radical. Uh, and they have, they're committed to a very radical form of identity politics, uh, which is explicitly opposed to ideas of conventional and traditional patriotism and national identity. So at the moment, Jeremy Corbyn is trying to ride two horses at once, I would say. He's doing pretty well, I have to say, uh, but it seems to me that that's a very difficult electoral coalition to have together. And it's a contradiction in the ideology, because what you have is an ideology that combines radical economic collectivism uh, with a form of uh, social pluralism. Uh, which is, and it's very hard to combine those two things. That was not a problem for orthodox communists in the past because they didn't believe in the social pluralism. Uh, this kind of new left, if you will, does, and I think that's an incoherent position eventually. It's also going to be an incoherent position politically, ultimately, I think, but we'll see about that. We'll, you know, we'll have to see how that works out. Bernie Sanders also illustrates this. If you look at the kind of line he took during his unsuccessful attempt to get the uh, Democratic nomination, uh, before he was totally stiffed by people in the Democratic Party, although something we would not have known were it not for the wicked Russians. 
um, the, um, uh, the, uh, uh, what you'll see is that he very carefully and consciously made his message almost entirely about economics. He did not appeal to the cultural radical agenda of most of his followers. And that was very astute on his part. There are two reasons for that. One is he doesn't believe it, actually. I think if you look at his own record, voting record, and what he said in the past, he doesn't believe that stuff. But also he knew perfectly well that that would weaken his appeal to the other kind of voters that he wanted. But this is definitely one challenge that liberalism faces. Uh, socialism and ideas about socialism, which we thought were maybe you know, put in a box uh, and with the lid nailed down, maybe with the stake driven through its heart. Uh, it's like that Hammer House of Horror movies where no matter what you do to Dracula in the previous film, he always makes a comeback. Uh, so there's something of that going on. On the other hand, what we also have, particularly in Europe, is this. Uh, these are the logos of populist parties uh, throughout Europe. Uh, now, there's a kind of wide range of positions here. Some like uh, UKIP uh, or the Front National, uh, are relatively on the more sort of like moderate end of this. Some of the other parties you see there, uh, like Jobbik, for example, these are Nazi parties, basically. Uh, they, Jobbik is the second biggest party in Hungary, uh, and they're a fascist party. There's just no doubt about that. By the way, you'll notice, if you look at that map, uh, they've got the party logo superimposed on a map of Hungary, but those of you with any knowledge of history will realize that's a map of Hungary as it was before 1919. Uh, so incorporating all of Croatia and a big chunk of what is now Romania uh, and um, uh, Slovakia. Uh, these uh, modest ambitions, you might say. Uh, and so you'll notice that this is a phenomenon that's uh, happening all over Europe. And it's not just Europe. Uh, so uh, here we have, I think this is a, a, a takeoff of a famous uh, communist era propaganda poster. And there you have, of course, I don't need to tell you who the chap on the uh, left is. Uh, you've got Marine Le Pen in the middle. And then the chap at the end is the current Hungarian prime minister, Viktor Orban. Uh, now, Orban has been in power in Hungary for quite a few years now, most of that time with a two-thirds majority in Parliament. He recently lost his two-thirds majority through a parliamentary by-election, which is the first setback he's received for quite a while. Orban explicitly states that the kind of political movement that he and other people, like uh, Marine Le Pen, are trying to create is an anti-liberal democracy. And what Orban has made very clear is that the politics that he and these other populists uh, represent is one that is explicitly, overtly, and centrally anti-liberal. It's the assertion of a liberal, a national identity, which once again is going to trump, uh, to rule over rule, uh, and subordinate uh, concerns with things like due process, the rule of law, uh, and uh, individual liberty and individual rights. These are seen as an obstacle to the project of national self-realization uh, and protection of nations against the threat of uh, globalist uh, cosmopolitan free markets. Uh, and I think that this is the kind of politics that Donald Trump represents here in the United States. Uh, whether or not he himself thinks this is another matter, uh, that would imply that he has coherent uh, thoughts. Um, and I, I, I have doubts about that. He's a smart man, but I don't think he... Um, it's very dangerous to think that he's not a smart man, by the way, uh, or that he's not in control of a lot of what is going on. Uh, but 
Uh, I, it's not clear to me that he has uh, a completely worked out political philosophy, shall we say, which Viktor Orban clearly does, uh, and I think Marine Le Pen does as well. But I think the kind of politics that you're seeing here uh, in the US uh, of this kind is very similar. Uh, I'll say more about what it is in a moment. You're seeing it happening elsewhere in the world as well. Uh, I mentioned Turkey in my previous talk, uh, Erkaban, that is very much a politics of the same kind. Uh, there's also a strong element of this in the politics of India at the moment uh, and the policies of um, uh, Mahendra Modi and the BJP and the governing party in India. Uh, and there are elements of it appearing uh, in many, many other places outside Western Europe uh, and the United States. The only major countries that seem to have uh, not seen a rise of this new kind of anti-liberal politics so far are Canada and Japan. Uh, now, Japan, I think that's because Japan has a kind of unique and distinctly Japanese way of doing things. The consensual nature of Japanese society means that you don't tend to get the kind of explicit ideological conflicts and combats that you get in most other countries. Uh, Canada is an interesting case. It's, it's an interesting question of why Canada has proved so far resistant to this kind of politics. Spain and Portugal are the other two countries where it doesn't appear to have uh, made an approach. So what is this other kind of anti-liberal politics? Well, it's an emerging, uh, this is the emerging ideology of this kind of uh, new anti-liberal politics. And it combines the following elements. The first is nationalism. Uh, this is a politics which emphasizes nationalism, national identity, national particularity, uh, and is explicitly opposed, as it says further down, to globalism and cosmopolitanism. The second thing is collectivism. Uh, it's national collectivism. The collective, which has to overrule the individual, uh, is uh, the nation. It's also not only anti-individualist, but anti-pluralist. Uh, a lot of this politics is populist, and the essence of populism is the claim that the fundamental political divide is between the people who are virtuous and the elite who are corrupt and degenerate. Uh, but what is also assumed in populist politics is that the people are united and of one will. Uh, if you don't agree with uh, what is deemed to be the will of the people, that shows that you are not part of the people. Uh, and you must expect to suffer uh, a particularly unpleasant fate as a result of that. And so you see this kind of claim constantly. Uh, in Hungary, for example, the explicit claim of Orban is that if you do not support his agenda, if you are a Hungarian liberal, one of the embattled Hungarian liberals, that shows you're not a true Hungarian. Uh, similarly, in Poland, the current governing party in Poland, the Law and Justice Party, is making a similar kind of claim. The argument there is that the Law and Justice Party is expressing the true national identity of all Poles. Uh, there can be only one national identity. You cannot have pluralism of beliefs or practices. So this is a collectivism which rejects both individual liberty, uh, but also social pluralism, cultural pluralism, uh, and a range of things like that. There's also economic dirigism. Uh, one of the most interesting things that happened during the um, recent French presidential election was that the ultimately successful campaign of Emmanuel Macron uh, produced a very clever propaganda poster where they showed the first 10 points of the economic program of both Marine Le Pen, the leader of the Front National, and Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the far-left candidate. The two 10 points of their program were identical. Uh, 
we have this lazy way of thinking where people say, oh, Marine Le Pen is on the right. And people assume, oh, that must mean she's pro-free market. No, not at all. Marine Le Pen's programme was well to the left of anything that Jeremy Corbyn offered in the British general election recently. Uh, significantly so. What is the kind of platform that you get? Well, it's not socialism. It's rather a kind of economics which has protectionism, the use of strong government power to intervene in the economy to promote national champions, to promote national economic power, economic well-being, uh, to basically have a system where you have um, private ownership of some of the means of production, but it's guided and directed by a government to serve national patriotic ends. And this, as I say, is associated explicitly with things like a national industrial strategy, uh, protectionism, uh, and things of that sort. Uh, and also, uh, you have a pro... Uh, that These people are very pro-welfare state. Uh, they support the welfare state very, very strongly. Uh, but what they want is a national welfare state in which welfare goods, welfare transfer entitlements, are a function of citizenship which is only given to people who belong to the people, and above all, not given to immigrants. And popular hostility to uh, migrants, immigrants, who are perceived to be taking what are benefits that are supposed to only go to citizens is one of the main uh, social drivers of support for this ideology. As I say, an explicit thing is anti-globalism and cosmopolitanism. Uh, if you read the platforms of quite a few of these European parties, uh, this is the main focus of a lot of their rhetoric. Hostility to what above all is called the global forces of finance capitalism, which for anyone who knows anything about history is a code word. Uh, it's a coded expression, uh, which is meant to refer, of course, to a particular ethnic group. Uh, and do not think that the people who are using this don't know that. Uh, this is just a way of putting across a particular message uh, without being so crass as to say it explicitly. But also it's the belief and idea uh, that we're living in a world which is dominated by finance, uh, by deracinated cosmopolitan people at companies like Google or the major financial institutions and corporations who are destroying and undermining national identity. Uh, and also, finally, uh, the last two points on this list, this emerging ideology combines traditionalism uh, with social and political authoritarianism. Uh, by traditionalism, I mean support for traditional uh, sexual, cultural uh, patterns of behaviour, and the idea that the state should enforce these and not allow uh, individual liberty in these areas. Now, if you look at that combination of values, you might say, why not call this National Socialism? Um, but, you know, of course, that, that title has been claimed. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, I think something like National Collectivism or National Populism uh, is a good term for it. And this is an ideology which is rising very, very rapidly in country after country. You are constantly going to read reports that it has uh, passed its peak, it's died, do not believe this. I wish this were true, but actually it's not. Uh, in Germany, for example, they had an election just recently. Uh, before it, everyone was saying, oh, the Populist Party in Germany, the alternative for Deutschland, it's, had, it's passed its peak, it's only going to get 5 6% of the vote. In the event it got double that percentage of the vote, 
uh, got over 30% in one of the lander in Saxony. That did not surprise me, I'm afraid. In Sweden, the heartland of social democracy, uh, it is abs it's a racing certainty that the Sweden Democrats, the Swedish party of this kind, will come second uh, in the opinion polls, and there's an extremely good chance, I think a better than even money chance, that they will actually be the largest single party in the Riksdag uh, after the next election in, in Sweden. So this is an ideology on the rise. Now, what I meant, this refers back to the thing I mentioned earlier, which is that there's a temptation to think uh, that uh, all of the attacks on liberalism come from either the managerialist progressives or from radical leftists like communists. But actually, uh, historically, that's not been true. Historically, liberals have faced opposition from a whole range of anti-liberal positions. And actually, increasingly, many of the most dangerous threats to uh, liberal values, liberal principles, and liberal institutions are coming not so much from the socialist left, even though that is experiencing something of a revival in various ways, but rather from this emerging new ideology of the populist right. Uh, and what I would finally conclude by saying is that there's something going on uh, below the radar in this part of politics which I want to draw your attention to. I mentioned earlier on that one of the things that happened in the years before World War I was the emergence of a kind of set of cultural movements in things like the, the arts, music, uh, literature and the like, which were explicitly anti-liberal, which valorized violence and war, which lauded sacrifice uh, and the subordination of the individual to uh, some kind of heroic manifest destiny. Uh, and this is also happening now. There are many people out there who are concerned to promote an explicitly anti-liberal position through what they call metapolitics. Metapolitics, uh, this is a term invented by the American conservative philosopher and poet Peter Vierek back in the 1940s. Metapolitics is the kind of pre-political layer uh, of social life. It means things like attitudes, uh, sensibilities, sentiments, things which themselves are not political, which, are, which find expression in things like music, the imagery of the fine arts and sculpture uh, and literature, but which in turn lead people to view the world in a particular way and to see the world through a particular kind of prism. And there's a huge effort being made at the moment to promote a particular kind of anti-liberal sensibility and metapolitics of this kind. Uh, and here is an example of it. That's, uh, that's an example of what is known as martial industrial music, uh, which is a subculture of music that is uh, making, gradually spreading very rapidly under the radar uh, throughout Europe and North America. Ah, well, th this, is what, this is what I mean by it. What is this about? Well, look, for example, at the imagery associated with that. What is the image about? That image is about force, force. domination, yeah. aggression, uh, and a vision of the world in which the only question is, are you the man on the horse with the spear or the guy who's the lion that's about to be speared there? Uh, the... Another thing which features commonly in this genre and this whole metapolitical project is the use of imagery drawn from the Roman Empire and uh, the emphasis upon power and a hierarchical dominant form of politics. The music is martial. It's about uh, warlike qualities. It's about collective mass experience. Uh, and this is not actually as overt and in your face as much of it. I could have played you uh, a track, I was thinking of doing it, uh, by a band, a Czech band of all things, called Arditi, uh, 
sorry, Scandinavian, it is Swedish, Arditi, uh, which involves, amongst other things, a big sample of a speech by Nikolai Kodrianu. Uh, he was a Romanian fascist uh, from the interwar years. They sampled part of his speech in this. To give you an idea of what Kodrianu was like, uh, he founded a political party called the Legion of St. Michael, or the Iron Guard, as it was called. Uh, and even Hitler thought he was a bit f extreme. Uh, uh, so the, um, a bit of a nut job, you know, uh, and uh, that, so the fact that when you get a bit like that sampled in a musical uh, piece, that's sending a pretty strong message. Uh, so what you have here is a kind of uh, attempt to create a cultural uh, politics uh, which is intended to undermine and subvert a liberal sensibility. Uh, and they quite explicitly look back to people like Marinetti and the Futurists uh, and the other parts of the avant-garde uh, in the late 19th century. So uh, I will conclude by saying that that is something basically to bear in mind. Uh, so liberalism uh, has got new challenges uh, and new uh, opponents. And I think what is important is that we understand where these people are coming from and what their underlying beliefs and ideas are, because only if we do that will we be able to effectively rebut them uh, and ultimately defeat them the way previous challenges were defeated and seen off. So at that point, I'll stop. Yes. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, unrelated, uh, Mussolini as regional governor managed to kill my great-grandfather and great-grandmother when he was a regional person in northern Italy. So some of your, your pictures bring back some memories that I've heard, I've heard all my life. And the music from your, across the Rubicon sounds like Prokofiev's uh, Alexander Nevsky. Hmm. Uh, which is really militaristic Russian yeah, absolutely. works. Yeah. So my question really had to do with the two groups that you started with, the, uh, the, what I call the government religious group and the uh, classical uh, Republicans. <clears throat> you said that they were anti-liberal and anti-commercial. Yes. Um, <clears throat> how does this, if any, carry on to the attitude to the Jews who were perceived as merchants yeah. You, you hinted on it just a minute yeah. ago in the, in the, how it carries on to the globalist issues, yeah. that there were a certain ethnic group, you didn't name it. So my question is, is there a residual today, which I believe there is, and would you like to comment on it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that is exactly what you find. Um, one of the, if you look at those anti-liberal movements, there are a number of common themes. Uh, Anti-individualism, collectivism, authoritarianism, uh, collective purpose, but also anti-commercialism. It's one of the constantly recurring themes of anti-liberal thought, is the idea that bourgeois liberal society is not heroic. Uh, it is obsessed with comfort. It's effeminate. Uh, it is all about the domestic uh, and uh, the trivial, the quotidian, the mundane. It doesn't have the kind of elevated heroic vision. That's the argument. Now, you're absolutely right. Jews, because of their historic role as merchants and middlemen, are one of the targets of that kind of critique. Uh, Anti-Semitism is a major feature of much of this kind of politics. Uh, it's not just uh, Jews, though. It's diaspora 
mercantile groups in general who, who tend to get it in the neck from this kind of politics. Uh, and it relates to the kind of broadly anti-commercial uh, and anti-market uh, and exchange-based uh, aspect to this. Now, you can see, I, I spoke a moment ago about metapolitics. You can see this very clearly, I think, uh, in all kinds of areas. Uh, you can see the debate, for example, in the late, 19th late 18th century. I showed you the picture by David. David and painters like him are reacting against the art forms of the Rococo of the late 18th century. Rococo art is all about material comfort and pleasure. It's all about the benefits of trade, because if you see a typical Rococo painting, it's full of Chinese and Indian and Turkish goods which have been imported into Europe, which are a sign of luxury and a sign of material comfort and well-being. David thinks, oh, this is rubbish. You know, uh, what you need to be is like those Roman soldier farmers. Uh, simple, plain, straightforward. Forget all this you know, commercial wealth stuff. Uh, and that's the same kind of line that you get repeatedly throughout this. And you see it expressed, as I say, in art as well. I mean, there's, there's many examples. And one of the recurring features, by the way, um, of a lot of literature uh, is, the is the assertion of the domestic as opposed to the heroic. Uh, you see that in George Eliot, for example. You see it in Tolkien. I think The Lord of the Rings is actually largely about the limitations of conventional heroism because Aragorn is the conventional hero and Tolkien takes great pains, because he knew what he was doing, to give Aragorn all of the classic features of the traditional mythical hero. He has a mysterious birth, nobody knows who he is until his identity is revealed to him, he has a sword which needs to be reforged, all this kind of stuff. But Aragorn is not the one who destroys the Dark Lord, that is a hobbit and the hobbits are quintessential bourgeois. And when you think about that book, how does Tolkien end it? What is the climax, if you like, at the end of the book? It's not the collapse of Sauron. It's the scene where Sam Gamgee, who has said goodbye to Frodo at the Grey Havens, goes back home and he goes into his house and his wife puts his baby daughter on his lap and he says, well, I'm back. And it's all about the value of domesticity as opposed to grandiose plans and designs uh, and the ideas of, uh, of heroism. It's the same in J.K. Rowling, by the way. Um, Harry Potter, in a way, is all about the assertion of true functional domesticity against uh, the uh, kind of challenges that it faces. So this is a constantly recurring theme. Yep. Yes, uh, I wanted to comment on your uh, analysis of progressive movements that are currently uh, growing around the, around the world, and posit the possibility that there's a distinct difference between the state of the progressive movement in the U, uh, uh, the populist movement, I'm sorry, populist movement in the US versus those European countries where they all have a, a clearly laid out ideology with party platforms and so on. And I would argue that the populist movement as it's so far demonstrated in the US has no such ideology thought through, hmm. and many of it in, it in its basis may be more based on the suppression of economic liberty that we've experienced over the last eight years with progressive government, as opposed to a, uh, uh, you know, and you can't have individual liberty without economic liberty. So could you comment on whether maybe it's not the right time to say it's exactly the same as the European, but more of a reaction to uh, 
progressive government that we've had the last eight years. I'm afraid I don't think that's true. I would like that to be true, but I don't think it is. Uh, what, it, first of all, you say you don't have explicit party platforms, everything's like much more ad hoc individual. That's the standard way American politics works. Uh, it, it's what, it, that is one of the differences between politics in the United States versus politics in Europe. It's partly a function of having a first-past-the-post electoral system where you don't have differentiated ideologically particular parties. You have large, loose coalitions of party, parties, the Republicans and the Democrats, which have to try and appeal to a wide range of different ideological or political positions. Uh, but that does not mean that you don't get a broad shift in a particular ideological direction. That's what happened in the 1930s. It's what happened in earlier periods in American history as well, uh, say in the 1820s, for example, during the Jacksonian era. And also, it, within the populist movement in the United States, there are people who are ideologues, people who do indeed have a worked-out political philosophy, people like Steve Bannon, for example, uh, others like him. Uh, and the, it's perfectly true that they may work through or alongside politicians who are opportunistic, uh, who basically are just looking for whatever will put together a voting coalition, but that doesn't mean that you're not getting a political shift in that direction. Uh, and I think, I'm afraid, what is going on at the moment, I think, this is my personal, purely personal opinion, I hope I'm proved wrong about this, but what I think is going on at the moment uh, is that the Republican Party in the United States is being... Uh, quite rapidly, I think, transformed, and I think this will become apparent after the upcoming midterm elections and two years after that, into basically an American Nationalist Party, a party which combines a pretty active role for government in the economy, probably protectionism, certainly anti-economic globalization, uh, with a particular kind of assertion of a traditional notion of American national identity. Now, I do think it will be civic nationalism. I think that it is not the case that you'll get an explicitly um, white identitarian politics, which is what the left-wing critics of this movement claim it is. I don't think you will get that, which is not the case in Europe. You are getting this kind of identitarian politics there. But I think you will get it over here. And I think that the Republican Party is quite rapidly transforming in that direction. Now, um, a lot of this is pure opportunism, absolutely. It is a case of, you know, politicians who have, you know, they basically have the Groucho Marx view of political principles. These are my principles. If you do not like them, I've got others. <laughs> uh, and, you know, that, that's a good way to understand a lot of what's going on here. Uh, but there are genuinely principled people uh, who have very bad ideas. And I'm, I'm afraid, I think, that uh, the, uh, this is what's going on. Now, on the other hand, to be more hopeful, what I implied was that the kind of movement that's represented by Bernie Sanders over here, by Corbyn and the Labour Party back in the UK, is ideologically and, more importantly, electorally incoherent. And what I think is going to happen, uh, not in the next presidential election, but probably in the couple of years after that, is that the, uh, there will be a major kind of realignment in politics. And I think you're already starting to see this with the really quite deep divisions in the Democratic Party here in the United States between what are increasingly self-defined as liberals and progressives. Uh, and uh, this is couched too much in terms of personalities for my liking, Sanders versus Clinton and all that kind of thing. I think it reflects some deep divisions of both sensibility and ideology, and I think that there is going to be a kind of major realignment of that kind, uh, and it will take place over the next six years. So it's bad news, I think, uh, if you value liberty in terms of what's happening in the Republican Party side of politics, but I think that there's more hope, actually, than you might imagine at this point in time uh, for the outcome on the other side, uh, medium term.
Yep. Yes. Uh, do you know, can you think of current examples of pro-liberal metapolitics in the arts? No, and that's a big problem, it seems to me. Um, one of the interesting questions is, when has there been explicitly pro-liberal metapolitics? And um, I, I think in the mid-19th century, you see a lot of that. I mentioned George Eliot, for example. I think Middlemarch is, and a lot of other, Eliot's other writing is, amongst other things, she's a great writer and you can't like, you know, reduce it to this thing, but amongst other things, it is an explicitly pro-liberal metapolitics. She's trying to put across a particular kind of vision uh, of um, human agency uh, and the nature of what it is to lead a good life, uh, which has very profound political implications. Uh, and I think this, that there have been other examples of that. There, in in, in uh, French literature, I think Stendhal is another example of that. I think Schiller is an example of it in German literature. Not so much recently. Uh, now, you're more likely to find that kind of explicitly liberal and indeed anti-liberal metapolitics actually in popular fiction than you are in um, attempts to write high fiction, the kind of stuff where people are trying to win a literary prize, a lot of which I think is only going to win prizes for pretentiousness, quite frankly. Um, the, if you read things like science fiction or genre fiction, which I do, uh, what is quite striking is the degree to which uh, there is a kind of growing expression of both an anti-liberal position in, uh, say, SF, with an increasingly self-conscious individualist libertarian position. This has led, by the way, to an enormous row amongst the, the SF community in recent years over Hugo Award nominations. The Hugo is the big gong for uh, science fiction writers, which is given out by the science fiction, the, the World Fans Convention, the Worldcon. Um, and the, no, there's an enormous like, ideological conflict going on amongst SF fans. And you might not think, how, how can stories about galactic empires get people upset on ideological grounds. Well, actually, quite easily. Uh, and I think that's where you can begin to see the start of it.